The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Turn your scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, and we're beginning reading at verse 27, reading through to verse 44, and that's found on page 834 of your Pew Bible. Matthew 27, verse 27, this is the Word of God. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered there the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him, and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we are conscious. We are stepping onto holy ground. And we are mindful of our own native unholiness. And not only in sin, but also in just physical frailty, emotional weakness. Whatever needs we have, we come before you and lay them before your throne. We confess readily, without you we can do nothing. How we need you now, almighty God. How we need the ministry of the eternal spirit in my mouth and in all our hearts. We plead with you, Lord God, show us Christ in both his humiliation and his glory. To the warming of our hearts and the encouraging of our faith, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we come perhaps undoubtedly to the most sobering passage in all of Scripture. Having appeared before the wicked Pilate, our Lord is now handed over to the Roman soldiers in order that he might be crucified. 
From a human perspective, the narrative is ghastly. From a divine perspective, it really is the demonstration of God's righteousness, God's justice, but also his great love and his great mercy towards sinners. Because here we observe in the cross, God's love, uh, God's justice rather, and God's mercy converging on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The crucifixion confounds mere human thought, that the Son should place himself in the position of judgment so that we might enjoy full remission of sins and peace with God. It's a staggering reality, a staggering truth by any measurement that we should have peace with God because of another one's work should really set our hearts aflame this day. And we see that really in the sadness and sorrow, the terror and horror of the narrative before us. We see, first of all, in verse 27, a mocked saviour, ridiculed, belittled. And then in verse 32, we see a crucified saviour, These truths are too great for us, but with the Spirit's help, we shall prosper from them this day. First of all, we look at a Savior that was mocked. When we think of these narratives, we can think of uh, the narrative through a, a number of lenses. There is, as I've mentioned, the human lens, as it were, the suffering, the injustice, the wickedness, the cold heartedness of man. But there is a deeper significance to this text, undoubtedly. It is the divine intention behind the text, behind the crucifixion of Christ, the fact that all the details of this narrative were foretold according to the will of God in order to accomplish his purpose of salvation through crucifixion. And we can even fine-tune that lens even more uh, by the work of Scripture itself. What does the crucifixion of Christ mean to us as Christians? The human lens, the divine purpose, and then fine-tuning it, what's the payoff? What does it really mean for you and me here today? Those are the broad outlines of what we'll consider as we work our way through the passage. We first, first witness Uh, If you like the human lens, the mockery of fools against our Lord, the mockery that they brought against the Savior, verse 27. Matthew gives perhaps the completest picture of all the Gospels of the mockery of our Lord. The text says, verse 27, Jesus is handed over to the soldiers so that they might crucify him. But before that, he goes before the battalion. The Greek word there is cohort. He's probably surrounded by a number approaching 600 soldiers. In other words, this is a military mob that surrounds the Savior in order to belittle him in his final moments before he goes to the cross. And we need to think through this mockery as we see it in verse 27 to verse 31, because they mock him in a specific way, specific to his person, specific to his calling, specific to his office as Messiah. And William Hendrickson in his commentary does a most excellent job of analyzing this mockery. Consider this. Verse 28, we read, they stripped him. That is, they disrobed him of his ordinary clothes. Uh, And then they robe him. 
with royal and glorious robes, a robe of scarlet. And they, uh, they then put a crown upon him, a crown of thorns, verse 29. Uh, they scepter him, they give him a royal symbol of power, though it's a reed. And then mockingly, they bow down before him and adore him. All things that ordinarily would happen to earthly kings. And then they turn on him for the worse. They treat him cruelly. They spit on him. They strike his head. They take the royal robes of scarlet off, put his own clothes back on him, and lead him away to be crucified. Consider this, friends, the tragedy of the matter. They've charged him with claiming to be a king. As Pastor Rockin said last week, he is a king. But not according to the Jews' understanding of kingship, nor indeed the Romans' understanding of kingship. So what do they do? They array him in kingly fashion and mock his person. They mock his claims. They mock his office as Messiah. It's belittling our Lord at the very heart of his earthly calling. Consider the eternal Son should take on flesh and be treated in such a way, all the while he's sustaining the breath in the lungs of those who mock him. Remember, he'd just been scourged. A scourging is a whipping with a whip with bone and metal in it. His back was torn to shreds, covered in blood, and now they plait a crown of thorns, put it on his head, so that blood begins, no doubt, to run down his head also. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine holding my tongue under such treatment. I can't imagine remaining silent and sinless in the face of such persecution. But don't be mistaken, friends. This is neither the holding the tongue of the coward nor the holding of the tongue of a broken spirit. Rather, the holding of the tongue of the spirit-filled one, who would hold his peace in order that he might fulfill his divine calling. That's not the last time we see that in this narrative. As they mock him on the cross, if you are the Son of God, come down. He held his tongue. He kept his counsel in order to obey his divine calling. And yet, friends, we see all this wickedness, all this horror, this belittling, not just through a human lens, but it is according to the divine will of Almighty God. All that happens to our Lord here has been previously prophesied, and Jesus knew this, and he knew that he must fulfill every last prophecy concerning himself. Friends, just pause a minute and consider the awakening or the dawning of what that would have been like in Jesus' life. As God, he knew everything. As a, as a man, he learned, and he learned by studying the Scriptures. Imagine as he read the Old Testament and saw these prophecies and promises of his suffering. What a dawning that must have been in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he realized, these scriptures speak of me. For example, we read this in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before is silent before it sorry before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he has put him to grief it's not the romans plan being outworked here it's not even the jews plan fundamentally it's the plan of almighty god that his son should be ridiculed and belittled before being put to death this was the mission to which our lord was wholeheartedly committed he agreed before the foundation of the world to do this and he enacted that agreement in time in the words of our text he agreed to the humiliation he agreed to the mocking he agreed to the beating he agreed to the scourging he agreed to the silence and ultimately he agreed to the cross friends we understand this is one of the final pieces of the jigsaw of our lord jesus christ stepping into our place do we understand that calvin comments on this transaction of he stepping into what we deserve calvin writes first then we ought to consider what we have deserved our filthiness deserves that god should hold it in abhorrence and that all the angels should spit on us but christ in order to present us pure and unspotted in the presence of the Father, resolved to be spat upon and to be dishonored by every kind of reproaches. This holy and unholy and unjust treatment would not even be acceptable to our minds for a guilty party, and Jesus was not personally guilty consider this also what place does the son of god have with a crown of thorns on his head is not the crown of thorns are not thorns the symbol of the curse the very symbol of the curse and here is jesus crowned with the curse on his head blood no doubt running down his forehead a symbol of his whole being about to come under the power of the curse he was about to be plunged under the curse of almighty god enveloped in it and what part did he have in this curse personally none none we sing this don't we bearing shame and scoffing root In my place condemned he stood. And yet this horror in his suffering is also the, the glory that he received. Because these sufferings, you see, are evidence of two things. Firstly, a willingness to die on our behalf to take the reproach, to bear the curse on himself so that we might not face those same realities. A willingness. He did this willingly. But he was also worthy. 
worthy to do this very thing. He was not found wanting in righteousness or holiness, even for one second of his life. His life of perfect righteousness equipped him and qualified him, made him worthy to go through this, to go to the cross. He could stand in the place of all his elect and bear the punishment for all their sins. Friends, consider Jesus. Consider this Jesus, despised and rejected by men, but held in honor and glory by us. And more importantly, held in honor and glory by his own Father. All the more honor and glory, not just because he was mocked, but then worse than that, he was crucified. Verse 32, a crucified Savior. There's much in this account that we could spend time over. We're not going to spend time on all of it. The first thing we note is the execution of Jesus was to take place outside of the city walls. Uh, at the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And as Jesus is walking out of the city carrying his own cross, he and the Roman soldiers meet a man, Simon of Cyrene, we're told in verse 32. I wonder how many of us know anything at all about Simon of Cyrene. Surely he's one of the forgotten characters of the crucifixion narrative. It's almost like a fact, a person we just pass over. And what I'm about to tell you now is, is, is not clearly laid out in Scripture, but I think it's there. And a number of commentators agree. Simon of Cyrene, they meet him on the way out of, to, uh, going out of the city, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. That's all we learn about Simon uh, in this text. We jump over to Mark, and we have the very interesting addition that this Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Interesting. Why in the world would Mark include that information in his text? Most commentators believe that Simon uh, is a Jew, perhaps even a convert to Judaism. He's from Cyrene, which is in modern-day Libya. So he's come a long way to Jerusalem to enjoy uh, the festivals. And then we read this uh, in, in Mark's Gospel, as I've said. He is the father of Alexander and Rufus. What do we make of that? We learn about a man called Rufus in Romans chapter 16 and verse 13. Rufus is one of the pillars of the church of Rome, so much so Paul picks him out. It appears that somewhere after this encounter with our Lord Jesus Christ, Simon is converted. That this encounter with the Savior is the catalyst to him receiving the Savior, and then his children are raised in the faith. Years later, one of them becomes a pillar in the church. Isn't that an interesting picture? Really a picture of the entirety of Christ's life. Who did our Lord tell to take up their cross and follow him? His own disciples. Where are they right now? They're gone. So in the providence of God, someone else is called to take up Christ's cross. And that one in time appears, would become himself a disciple, raising his family to the glory of God and the service of the church. It's remarkable if it's accurate. I think it is. 
Simon, we're told, carries this cross outside of the city to a place uh, called Golgotha. That means place of the skull. Parents, you can Google this for your children. You can see a mound of rock outside of Jerusalem with caves in it which make it look like a skull. That's probably the place where our Lord was crucified. It's outside of the city. To the right of the Hebrews makes much of this idea of Christ dying outside of the city. You see, ever since Old Covenant times, the giving of the law, the building of the tabernacle, sacrifices, at least certain sacrifices, took place outside of the camp, outside of the city of God. We can see this back in Exodus chapter 29 and verse 14. Uh, The flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. The sin offering was to be consumed by fire and judgment outside of the camp. Here now is our Lord Jesus Christ going to be consumed, as it were, in crucifixion outside of the camp. He is acting. He is indeed a sin offering for the people of God. But the law of God also made provisions for sin, that it could be distanced from the people of God. We see this in Leviticus 16 and verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area. It's the law of the scapegoat where there's a symbolic transferring of the guilt of the people of God through the high priest's hands onto the head of the goat, and the goat is, as it were, excommunicated from the people of God, sent into the wilderness. It's actually a remarkable picture of what God says later on, that he will remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Distance between your sin and you placed there by Christ. That's what he's done. He has distanced you from your sin and its effects. In other words, here Jesus is becoming the embodiment of sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He went outside the city to face the fearful wrath of his Father in heaven. Friends, do we not see this is not a bull? This is not a goat. This is Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, Jesus of Nazareth, true God, true man. Perfect in righteousness, perfect in holiness, a real person with a reasonable soul. Do we understand, friends, the crucifixion is not an on-paper transaction? Or perhaps we'd say it's not an electronic transaction when nothing actually changes, just an amount. This is real. Real life. And we have to say, real death. Because we read there that the Romans crucified him. They crucified him. 
And notice Matthew gives little detail here. He gives a, a little bit more detail in verse 45 following. But he gives very little detail about the crucifixion itself. Very little detail about the physical suffering of our Lord at this time. Why is that? Perhaps there's so little emphasis on Jesus' physical suffering so that we will focus more on the theological reasons for crucifixion, the theological suffering. We see this played out in what happens before him then. Verse 35, they divided his garments, just as Psalm twenty-two eighteen said they would. They placed the charge mockingly over his head. They put him between two robbers, just as Isaiah fifty-three twelve had said they would. And the mockery continued, verse 39. They wagged their heads at him, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 42, the chief priests and elders join in. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Verse 44, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. All about him at that moment were mocking him. What appalling suffering, what terrible shame from men, even from robbers on each side of him. This is what our Lord endured for us. A man of sorrows he became, acquainted with grief. But the sorrow and grief of our Lord is not, as we've said, principally over the mockery over the pain of crucifixion, as, as appalling as that would be. It's not the shame before his human judges. It's what he faced from his divine judge. Because principally at the cross of Christ, the crucifixion, Jesus is judged by his Father. He's judged by God. The one who had earlier said of him, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, now poured out judgment on his head, the crown of thorns on his head, the symbol of curse, the cross to which he was nailed. Both these things stood for the penalty of transgressing not only the covenant of works, but the entire law of God. Jesus on the cross bore the curse of Adam's first sin and subsequently every sin committed by the elect of God. Not only did he bear the first curse of Adam's sin and all sins in him, he specifically bore the curse of the law of Moses. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. He bore the curse that he didn't deserve, that we actually deserved by our own sin. And he endured, did he not, the wrath, the terrible wrath of God. It's almost incredible for us to consider this. The beloved son became the object of the wrath of his father. Here at the cross, Jesus would drain the cup of God's wrath. 
that he had previously asked could pass before him. Here the father looked on his son as the embodiment of everything that was wrong with the world in sin. And Jesus faced his anger accordingly. It's forsaken by his father. Calvin comments, Certainly this was his chief conflict, and harder than all the other tortures, that in his anguish he was so far from being soothed by the assistance or favor of his father, that he felt himself in some measure estranged from him. He continues, it was necessary that Jesus should be placed as a guilty person at the judgment seat of God. That's what the cross of Christ is for. That's the curse, the judgment, the penalty. But friends, we have to say it's also the glory, the glory of the Savior. It's a great paradox in our minds. The paradox is not a contradiction. It's an apparent contradiction. How can the moment of lo- the, the lowest low, the curse of, of, of the elect on Jesus, be also the moment of his greatest glory thus far anyway? How could the Son, so perfect in righteousness, so tender to the lost, so kind and caring to those about him, be treated in such a way? simple answer is this. He chose to do it. It says in John's gospel, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus chose to this path. In agreement with his father's will in the councils of redemption, he agreed to it. When the Jews said to him, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Wow. He was the Son of God. But he would not come down from the cross. Because of his love to his Father and his love to his brethren. If he came down from that cross at that point, salvation is gone. No possibility of salvation. You see, this is the curse and glory at the same time. Jesus indeed felt the anger of God against him, and yet this was the highest act of his obedience, the greatest act of faith. It was for his glory, and friends, we have to say also for our glory our glory in the death of Christ. Remember he said the third lens that we can examine this passage through is how can we, what can we say about the crucifixion with respect to ourselves? Many of you will know the old spiritual, uh, first published in 1899, were you there? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? We don't sing it, and for good reason, it's, it's largely sentimental. Uh, The lines are these, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you there when the stone was rolled away? We don't sing it. But if we read or sung that hymn through the lens of Romans chapter 6, it would be the most remarkable song we've ever sung. Because the crucifixion 
and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ come to us as if we were there. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? United with him, that's the idea of baptism there, united with him in his death. Paul continues, we were buried uh, therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptized into his death, buried with him, so we might be raised with him. Were you there, friends? Not physically, of course, but yes, in Christ you were there. What does Paul say that means? Paul says this, that dying with Jesus at the cross is not our dying. It's the dying of the power of sin within us. The power of sin is broken in the crucifixion. Do we understand that, friends? The power of sin in the Christian is broken at the cross. We died to sin, its dominion, its power at the cross. We were buried with him so that we shall be raised with him to what? To newness of life. The resurrection is, is the sign that as we're united to Savior in his resurrection, we have a new principle of life, life towards God, life that delights in God, life that delights in that which is good and noble and true. That the old has been broken and the new has been given to us. Were you there? Yes, you were. When they crucified the Lord, when they nailed him to the cross, when they laid him in the tomb, when the stone was rolled away by faith, we were with him and in him. So that sin should no longer have any dominion over us. It's a call to all of us here today, dear friends, especially to those who do not know Jesus Christ, to deeply ponder these realities of his crucifixion, to deeply ponder the, the blessings of pardon of your sins and forgiveness of your debts, of the granting of righteousness that will allow you now and eternally to stand before God. I ask you, dear friend, if you're without Christ today, will you receive pardon and peace with God through your own works? Not a chance. You'll receive it in Christ. Stop wasting your life. Believe on the Savior and no life in the Savior. If you're a Christian already, I want to think of Christ on the cross, richly meditate upon him. Yes, we think of the horror, the terror, the curse. Absolutely, we must do that. We must surely also consider that this was Christ's willing sacrifice for you. If you're united to him by faith, this was his willing sacrifice for you. It's been said as he hung on the cross and he remained on the cross, he knew the names of every single person for whom he was dying. Love for Father, love for us, kept him on the cross. Ponder this also, in it he has rescued you from sin. 
provided you a righteousness, removed your sins as far from you as the east is from the west. And at the cross of Christ, hear this, the power of sin has been broken in you, dear Christian. That's why we sing, do we not? Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.